0: Well, good morning to each of you. It's good to see you all. After taking a week away from our series last week to celebrate... Hey, thank you to many of you who helped make last weekend happen. That was incredibly sweet. Um, But we took a week away from our sermon series on Galatians, and so we're getting back into uh, Galatians. And we find ourselves here in Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, and just to reorient us back to this letter a little bit, Galatians is one of those letters, one of uh, many letters that Paul wrote um, to to a church that he has a lot of affection for. He was there when this church was planted. He was a part of a team that brought the gospel message to them and probably has vivid memories of what it looked like to unpack the gospel to these people that he claims are his friends, and remembers what it looked like for them with faith to take hold of the freedom of knowing Jesus for the first time. But now what we have is Paul writing to them with grave concern because there are influential teachers in their midst that are sowing seeds of doubt. And what they're doing is they're attacking Paul's credibility as a gospel messenger to them. And so while we're dropping into the beginning of chapter 2, we really find ourselves in the middle of an argument that Paul is making as to why he is why he why the gospel message he delivered to them in the beginning is sufficient, incredible. And so 2 weeks ago Matt preached on how Paul received his call from none less than Jesus himself. That Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus and commissioned him and with apostolic authority to, to bring the gospel to bear uh, wherever he went. And then this week, what we're seeing is that Paul meets with the other apostles in Jerusalem, and they also agree to that. And so that's where we find ourselves in uh, Galatians chapter 2. I'll read the first 10 verses, and then we'll dig in. Hear the word of the Lord. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, although privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek And they to the circumcised, only they asked us to remember the poor, which is the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, we're gathered here before you, and I ask that you would take these words and apply them to our very hearts, that we might be edified and encouraged, that you might provoke thoughts of love and of worship toward you and a deeper burden for each other. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me protect me from saying things that you don't say and protect me from calling people to things that you don't call us to. But allow me to be faithful to you and what you're calling us to through this passage. I pray that you would help me to honor you and love these friends well over these next few moments. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So recently, I came across a practice. Uh, I, it, I was just gobsmacked. I'm curious how familiar you might be. Have you ever heard of the term "brushing" and w- with regard to some like fraudulent activity on Amazon? Talking about response, nobody. Okay, good. Well, that's good. That's good. That's really good news. I was afraid I was living under a rock. So here, here's <laughs> here's the way it goes. So brushing, it's it's a way of trying to gin up uh, fraudulent, uh, positive reviews of a product that you might be selling on a site like Amazon. So I just saw an, oh my, I've heard of this. Okay, so uh, here's the deal. The way it works is if you're trying to sell something online, the positive, generating positive reviews is really critical. It could make or break uh, your ability to sell or the, the, the future life of this product. It you know, drives up sales and snowballs. And so what I could do, and this is I'm not, I'm not promoting this, I'm just saying, what, what I could do as the seller is to make a duplicate, duplicate account of you, the, uh, the, the consumer, and use your name and your address, and then I would buy my own product and ship them to you, but then I'm the verified consumer, and I can create uh, glowing positive reviews of how life-changing what I'm trying to sell is. And what struck me about this whole thing, oh, you, apparently you know if you've been brushed, if you have weird things showing up at your house. So if that hasn't happened, uh, I think you're in the clear. You'll also be happy to know that this was a lot more common a couple of years ago than it is now. Um, but what struck me about this whole thing was just how seriously Amazon took this. In fact, they are in a battle to maintain the integrity of the reviews section of their website and have been for quite some time. They, they have uh, changed their policies and procedures many times through the years to try and deal with the latest clever fraudulent activity. Uh, they've even invested um, lots of money into litigation over these issues and yet all it takes is just some creative person to sow seeds of doubt and ruin the whole thing all over again. And what struck me about this whole thing is it illustrates for us in many ways just how hard it is to maintain the integrity of something. Like trust is really, really hard to come by. And seeds of doubt are really, really easy to sow. And what we have here is Paul calling the Galatian church and calling you and me to trust the gospel message that he originally delivered to the Galatians. And he has opponents That are sowing seeds of doubt. And and so what I want to look at with you is how does he attend to the question that these false teachers are creating in their midst? And so what we have here is a story about what, what Paul did in order to attend to the question. So I want to talk to you a little bit about what the question was. What was the question and then I want to talk to you about the stakes behind the question. And then I want to talk to you about the resolution that they find. The question, the stakes, and the resolution. First, the question. What we have here, the central question that's being asked is this one. How can I be justified in the eyes of God? It's, it's really that simple. That was the question. It was a question of justification. Justification. And there are two positions that are in play here in this passage. There's Paul's position, and then there's his opponent's, the Judaizer's position. Now hang with me here. Paul's position is really simple. He would say that the gospel tells us that our justification before God lies solely in our faith in Christ plus nothing else. It would be Jesus plus nothing in another letter, Paul wrote in Romans, he says that we have justification by faith, that we have justification by faith, and because of that, we have peace with God through Christ our Lord. That's, that's the equation for salvation that he proposes. And his opponents, the Judaizers, it's, it's pretty well accepted that these were Judaizers that were sowing these seeds of doubt. Uh, they would say, hang on, not so fast, that it's really not as simple as that. They would agree That faith in Jesus Christ was necessary, but they would add that a true person of faith in Jesus would need to take certain steps. They would need to, in order to identify themselves as a part of God's people, namely by becoming a little more Jewish. That they would need to become circumcised and accept some of their dietary laws. And before we write that, that might sound crazy to us, doesn't it? Um, but before we write them off as nonsensical, I, I need you to know that this was a tremendous issue in the early church. I mean, we're probably we're just a few we're probably ten, maybe maybe a little more years after Jesus's resurrection and ascension into heaven. The Christian church is very young in its age, and this was a really prominent issue. Uh, it shows up in letters that Paul wrote to the Philippians. It shows up in letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. It was a central point of debate uh, when a bunch of leaders gathered together in Acts 15. It was this question that they were seeking to answer. Is what is the nature of justification and the, the, the role of certain identifying markers of the Jewish people. Why? Well, because circumcision was a sacred mark. I and mean, circumcision was a sacred mark that indicated you're belonging to God's people since the days of Abraham. It was a big deal. And, uh, and uh, it was, it was, in many ways, it was a sign of salvation. And to, to those of a Jewish heritage, hearing Paul's law-free, faith-only, grace-only gospel had to sound risky. Like you were walking away from something important. Several years ago, Shonda and I went. On, I don't know if this is going to make sense to you, but I'm going to give this a shot. <laughs> but several years ago, Shonda and I went on vacation together. This was before kids, um, and we went to Mexico for some time away. Somebody made that made that possible for us. And uh, while we were there, we saw. You know, we're just kind of relaxing together, and we saw a number of people that were parasailing. It was kind of a big deal, and. Uh, and so we decided we wanted to parasail, and we decided that we wanted to parasail together. Like, we wanted to do some tandem parasailing. For some reason, we thought that tandem parasailing is good for a marriage. I don't know. So, so that's what we did. And we found, we asked around, and we found there was one particular company that, that would do this. Most everybody was solo, but there was one particular company that would do this, and it was our job to find it. And so we started asking around, and people would kind of direct us along. And I was looking for an office or a kiosk or something that, you know, would be something substantial to help me find the name of whoever did this tandem parasailing. And we were walking all over the place, and people just kept pointing to us, like, go that way. And eventually, somebody pointed us to a boat. Just go down to that boat. And so, we go down to the boat, and, the, and there was a language barrier um, they, they knew, we knew no Spanish. They knew very little English. And we just said, Hey, this is what we want to do. We want to go parasailing together at the same time. And they said, Oh yeah, come on, come on, get on the boat. Now I hadn't signed anything. I hadn't, uh, paid them even. And within minutes they were pushing off and we're out on the ocean with these people that we just barely met. And then minutes later with no instructions, Shonda and I are in the air together. I, I mean, with it, like maybe 100 feet, several hundred, like 300, maybe 400 feet. I have no idea. It was very, very high. And we're just attached by cable uh, to a boat, and we're going. And I have no idea who these people are. I had no instructions about it. I mean, not, I knew nothing. Like, where do I put my hands, and where do I not put my hands? I have no idea. I am so afraid because there's no sec- I feel like I don't know if I'm secure or not. In the field, and I'm looking at Shonda at this time, and she's not nervous at all. She's just having a great time, enjoying the view and the breeze. But I'm not enjoying the freedom. My sense of freedom and joy is being completely choked out by the feeling of risk that I feel. And this is a real issue. This is a real issue because it feels like walking away from something. For, Jew, for people that grow up in a Jewish heritage, to walk away from some of the fundamentals of what it meant to belong to the Jewish people must have felt incredibly risky. And the freedom and the joy, Paul is arguing that the freedom and the joy that you are invited into just by knowing Jesus Christ is being choked out by the feeling of risk by walking away so fundamental to who they are. So Paul takes their question seriously. And what does he do? Well, he tells them a story about a test case of a time years before when he went to Jerusalem. And there are four recorded visits that we have of Paul going to Jerusalem in Acts. And there's some discussion, some discrepancy about uh, exactly which one it is. I take the view that you can find details of this visit in Acts 11 if you're interested. Um, but Paul was there not to necessarily deal with this question but he was there because there was a collection for the poor. That there was a there was a famine at that time. That's why he goes because of a divine revelation. There was a famine, and there were a number of people that were taking collections from uh, from different wealthier areas to try and support those who were suffering from the famine in Jerusalem. And so Paul comes from Antioch, and he goes, and while he's there, he wants to, to discuss with these. Uh, Christian leaders of Jewish heritage, pillars of the faith, James, Cephas, who is Peter, and John. He names them later in the text. And he brings this question to bear for them. And, And what he does is he does something really clever. He brings Titus along with him. And Titus is a test case because Titus is a Gentile convert. And so he's uncircumcised. And he's asking the question: Would you add anything to uh, to Would you ask him to become circumcised or not? And this is really clever of Paul for two reasons. One is because Paul is pointing these Judaizers back to Christian Jewish leaders who are operating in Jerusalem. Like if anybody has authority on this matter, they would. If anybody can out Judaize the Judaizers, it would be them. But it's also important because Paul is also telling us that, hey, I've battled with this question for a long time. I've been in conversations on this issue forever, for several years. This is not my first Tupperware party, okay? And I don't know about you, but I don't think circumcision is a big deal for us. At least I hope it's not, not in this church anyway. But there's something deeper going on here that's really relevant to all of us. And I think it surfaces for us when we start looking at some of the stakes behind, that lie behind the answer to this question. And the stakes for Paul, I don't think, could be any higher. Because the first thing at stake was for Paul was simply the fruitfulness of his ministry. If you look at verse 2, he, he wanted to make sure that he was not running or had not run in vain. Paul wasn't concerned If the gospel he was preaching was true or not, but he was very concerned that if his allies who were serving the cause of the gospel in other places agreed with him on these really central points. And so the second thing that was at stake for Paul was the very unity of the church. Remember what I said about how this is a really young movement at this time? And if he's preaching one thing while the church in Jerusalem was preaching something else, then they have the beginnings already of a pulling apart of this new and fragile movement. So that's a real concern for him. And I want you to see just how interrelated these things are. That our fruitfulness in ministry in many ways is deeply connected to the unity of our faith, the unity of our gospel message. And that unified message is about the next thing that's really at stake behind this question, and it's simply the sufficiency how we view the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice for us. And this is why Paul is using freedom and slavery language in verse 4. Did you notice that? That, that can be kind of alarming, can't it? This isn't the last time that Paul will know that, well, that Paul will mention this, but he will say that the more we understand that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient, To cover the weight of our sin and justify us in the eyes of God. That faith in that sacrifice, that faith in what Jesus accomplished on our behalf is sufficient. Paul is saying a high view of that. Paul is saying that that, that adding nothing to that is central. And that to to, to try and add anything to that message is simply slavery to whatever it is that you're adding to it is what he says. And he's saying that anyone who teaches a gospel that asks you to earn your salvation in in any way, what they're inviting you into is a form of slavery. Because either Christ's sacrifice received by faith covers the weight of our sin or it doesn't. And either we're saved by grace through faith or we're not. And the minute, listen, the minute we start adding any kind of identifying qualifications, To Paul's equation of the gospel. Then we are inviting people into a form of slavery. Because we don't believe that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. And so finally he's concerned about how far-reaching the gospel message applied. If you look at verse 5, he wanted to see that the truth of the gospel might be applied for you. What he's saying is for you, for you Gentile Christians... I wanted to make sure that the gospel, the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And we're saying, is the gospel good news for some or is it good news for all? And so fruitfulness, unity of the church, sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice and the scope of salvation. Listen, these are big concerns that all lie behind how this question gets answered. That's what's at stake here. And where we fall in trying to answer this question has major implications for really just about anything we believe. And you know, not for nothing, but it can be very easy for us to look at gatherings of church leaders and their debates and think, that's kind of like, that doesn't, like, oh boy, that's about, that's not very exciting. (laughs) Like, how much does this matter? Do these details matter to me? I would love to have been a fly on the wall for this conversation where Paul brings Titus into the midst of James, Peter, and John. I'd love to just hear them think through and unpack the gospel together. And what is the resolution that they find? Well, it's really incredibly beautiful what we see happens here. In verse 9, we see that after some discussion, that they gave the right hand of fellowship to them. And what we see is a unity of purpose. That, hey, you are just as deeply committed to the cause of the gospel as I am. And it says in verse 6 that, that Paul says, they added nothing to my message. And it's incredibly wonderful what we see here. That they, they viewed each other as equals, as peers in the mission of the gospel truth. But they also, you also see a division of labor. That this united purpose led to a division of labor. That Paul had been entrusted with bringing the gospel to the circumcised, to the uncircumcised. While uh, Am I getting this right? Paul was bringing to the Gentiles the uncircumcised, while Peter, James, and John were entrusted with bringing the gospel to the circumcised. And so there's this division of labor. It's just beautiful. What unites them? one gospel message, one truth, that, the, that the, the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient to cover the weight of our sins and that as we trust in him, we literally we lay hold of the freedom that Christ has invited us to. And I know that this central issue isn't necessarily a topic of debate for us, but, but, but we do find ways, we do find ways in our life together of artificially imposing things that say, hey, this is what makes you a real Christian. it, it, It is just so easy for us to do that. And so this is a call to trust. And remember, trust is really hard, isn't it? We have to fight for trust. And we have to speak trust to each other. We have to pray for trust and call each other to trust. And this is why, because trust is hard, we see reassurances like this one all throughout God's word, that he is giving us over and over reasons that we can trust him. And let me tell you, this this gospel message is sturdy. It transcends time. It transcends cultures. It transcends languages. It's even powerful enough to transcend our own sin, and we can trust it, is what Paul is saying. But it's also a call to freedom. It's a call to freedom. To enjoy the freedom that God has given us. It's a call to live out the freedom in the place that God has called you to with the unique and beautiful gifts that God has given to you. And I think that begs a question, what, what are some ways that we rob each other of freedom? What are some ways that we rob each other in freedom? In my, in my experience, I think I think we can find it more in our practice than, than actually in our words, that it can be more implicit than explicit. Ways that we rob each other of freedom, ways that we can construct artificial standards of what it looks like to belong to God's people that, are out, that, that seek to add. I've been a part of things like that. I've been, I've been a member of churches that somehow kind of like implicitly seem like it's only for people that are put together in a certain way. I've been a part of churches that implicitly seem that it is only for, for those who are messy. I've been a, a part of churches that, that, uh, that have implicitly taught that, that we educate our children in a certain way. I've been a part of churches that implicitly seem like certain sins, certain sins are just unwelcome here. They they don't fall under God's grace, God's covering mercy. I've also known churches where single people feel very lonely because the church has set a standard of marriage, as if God, as if that's what Christian people do. They get married all the time. And I can't know that anybody set out meaning to become a certain kind of church in those particular ways, but we can drift in those directions very, very easily, where we can construct certain identifying markers that say, this is what it looks like to be a part of God's people. And we must resist that, because every, every time we move toward that, what we're doing is we're actually inviting each other into a form of slavery. But it was for freedom, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Listen. There is nothing left to earn. And that can feel scary. But there's nothing left for you to earn. There's nothing left for you to do. What Christ accomplished was fully and final. And I know trust is hard. And I know I may never again trust the review section on the Amazon website. And I, mean, I know that I may never feel very comfortable without really good instructions When I'm parasailing, you know, several hundred feet up in the air. I know. But listen, trusting in this is worth fighting for. It's resilient and it's deeply good. And it's one of the best things that we can offer to each other is a call toward trust. And that's what Paul Paul is calling us to trust here in this passage. And God is saying, I'm trustworthy, I'm worthy of your trust. Jesus is enough for you. None of this is about what you have done or what you have left undone. But it's all about what Christ has done for you. And my prayer for you this morning, as I close in prayer, is that the Holy Spirit will train us in trust. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, you know how easy it is for our hearts to doubt. And you know how hard it is for us to trust. And so I pray that you would train our souls in trust, that you would help us as we make our way in faith to trust the goodness and the sufficiency of Jesus, what you did for us. Help us to love you and to trust you and teach us again what it means for us to walk in the freedom that you call us into. Thank you, O Father, for all that you did for us. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.